Uh, let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would let us see more and more of the glory of our Lord Jesus, that he would grow big in our hearts and in our thinking and imaginations so that we would just start to glimpse his greatness. Now help us as we turn to your word, to know him in his word, Help me to speak it truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with understanding and believing hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of us have uh, lived together long enough to have experienced the reality that Christians aren't spared the trials and miseries of living in this world. We endure illness of mind or body in ourselves or our families that can affect every part of our lives. We move for work or study and can know great loneliness. We can make plans and have them completely upended by losing work, having an accident, being subjected to COVID emergency measures. Relationships that promise so much can wither, leaving us empty, shamed, angry, and sad, and we know grief as we experience the loss of those we love. To be sitting in this church is, if those things have not been your own experience yet, to know sisters and brothers for whom that is their life experience. And as believers, we can also face the extra pressure of the suspicion or opposition of others for whom our faith is offensive and our morality harmful people quite willing to portray orthodox believers as, in the words of one writer in the age last week, bigoted fundamentalists and worse. And there are times when you might think, where is Jesus? Does he know what I'm experiencing? Does he care? Can he help? And is it worth it, worth it to keep trusting, to keep living his way? The phrases of the creed we're looking at today and on the screen. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Give a resounding yes to all those questions. Proclaiming to all the believers in Jesus and so believers in the one God, Father, Son and Spirit are people with a present help and people with a wonderful future. People with a wonderful saviour who knows them, cares for them, and is with them now, a saviour whose glorious future guarantees his people's glorious future. Now, you mightn't hear that at first in the creed. In fact, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father seems to almost suggest that Jesus is now distant and inactive in a passive kind of retirement in heaven, sitting down with his feet up. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end, doesn't immediately suggest that this is a future we can look forward to. So let's look further at these phrases that describe Jesus' ascension, that is his going to the Father, 
and his returning glory so we can live confident of Jesus' presence and help now and of sharing in glory then. Jesus brings his resurrection appearances to an end by ascending to heaven in full view of his followers, as you heard in Acts 1. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw have seen him going into heaven. Now this ascension, this going to the Father was important for it told the disciples that they should no longer expect to see Jesus appearing to them on earth until he returned. And his bodily ascension also assures them and us that the incarnate Son never ceases to be God and man. The incarnation is not some temporary appearance of the eternal Son as a man in a body which he then abandons so that he can be in heaven. His body is transformed, yes, no longer mortal, subject to death, and glorious. But the Lord Jesus continues to be the incarnate Son, one who embodied can sympathise with our weaknesses as one of us. And by taking our humanity into heaven, into the presence of God, he assures us that we, embodied humans, will one day also be able to come into the presence of God. And in heaven, as the creed says, he is said to sit down at the right hand of God in fulfilment of the promise made in Psalm 111 to God's saving king, the eternal Lord. As Peter proclaimed at Pentecost, therefore, since he, Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But when scripture speaks of Jesus as being at God's right hand, the point is not location or posture. Scripture's communicating two things by this language of sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the first is seen in Acts 2. Being seated at God's right hand declares Jesus' victory and exaltation as God's king. You see, the right hand is not a location but a position of supreme authority. It's a picture taken from the courts of ancient oriental kings. The one at the right hand of the king was the one who exercised the authority of the king, to whom the king had delegated his authority and rule. Jesus, at God's right hand, exercises the authority of God. And he does this because he has triumphed over his enemies and triumphed over death. The second thing scripture is communicating when it says the risen ascended Lord Jesus is sitting at God's right hand is the completion of his atoning work. As the author of Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the significance of Jesus sitting down after completing his work is then spelled out in Hebrews 10, more or less the climax of the argument about Jesus' priestly work in Hebrews. 
The author says there, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified, being made holy. Sitting down means Jesus has completed for all time his priestly atoning work. He can sit down because that work was effective. He has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. That is, by offering himself once on the cross, he has done all that needs to be done to make us holy, fit to be in the presence of the holy God. When we confess Jesus has ascended and is sitting at God's right hand, we are saying that the Jesus who was shamed and despised on the cross now rules with all authority the victor. And we are saying he has atoned for all our sin. And there is nothing more that needs to be done to deal with our sin. And that means three important things for believers now in the present. Firstly, Jesus' bodily absence guarantees his spiritual presence with us, that he is present with us through the Holy Spirit. As the exalted king, Acts tells us he has received from the Father the Spirit and poured God's Spirit out on his people. And for this to happen, our Lord Jesus told his apostles on the night before he died that he had to go away. But now, he says, I am going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counsellor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Now, we need to hear that. Jesus' bodily absence from earth is for our benefit because it means he sends his spirit to his people, to all, to everyone who believes in him. Now, we're going to start thinking about the great gift of the spirit next week, but Jesus' absence means he can be present with each and every believer, each one of us who trusts him wherever we are, present in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, in a body on earth, a real body, the Lord Jesus could only be in one place at one time, ascended and sending the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. He is truly with each one of us as he promised when he said, I am with you always to the ends of the age, with us to empower us to live as his followers in the world, to protect us and to sustain our witness to him. And I hope if you're a believer, you live conscious of that. The Lord Jesus is with you. Secondly, Jesus' presence in heaven, his presence in the presence of the Father, means we are secure as God's people. 
This is what scripture is communicating when it says the ascended Lord Jesus is interceding for us. As you heard Paul write in Romans, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the writer of Hebrews says, but because he remains, that's Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him or able to save for all time, the alternate translation, those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Christ's intercession, that is his presence in heaven as the crucified one who has atoned for our sins once and for all, means we will never be rejected by God. He is always holding before the Father the effectiveness of his sacrifice and so believers are secure. Nothing will ever separate us from God for our sin will never be remembered by God, never brought to mind to cause us to be justly condemned, to exclude us from God's presence because Jesus is constantly interceding for us. And that's actually what it means. He is always, as our high priest, holding before the Father his effective sacrificial work. Jesus' intercession is not him getting messages from you and relaying, relaying them to God in a more effective way, a kind of heavenly lobbyist, right? It's him holding his work before the Father so that when the Father looks on us, he sees us through Jesus' finished work on the cross. He sees us as forgiven people, people whose sins are atoned for. And as he's forgiven people, that means we will know and can rely on God's steadfast love always. The love that will bring us to enjoy, as Paul says, all that our God has promised us. And thirdly, our Lord sitting at God's right hand now means we can always be confident of his powerful presence and help amongst four amongst and for his people. God says in Ephesians that the Lord Jesus is the exalted head of his body, the church. And that image alone, Christ as the head of his church, speaks of an unbroken connection with our exalted saviour and of him as the source of our continuing life. And yes, it speaks of him as the bridegroom of his people who nourishes and cherishes the life of his bride. And in Ephesians, this image of head is used to focus on our Lord's present power and authority over all things exercised for and amongst his people. And he, God, it says, subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body. Now, to see what Christ being our head means for his people, consider some examples. Think of that persecutor Saul. There he is driving the early church to extinction, seeking to destroy it in his zeal for the tradition of his fathers. And Jesus' people are suffering. Now, how has that situation turned around? 
Is it by the plans and power and influence of the early Christians individually or collectively applying themselves? Well, no. It's by the Lord Jesus. This is what we read in Acts. Falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, said Saul. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. You see, the Lord Jesus is inseparable from his people. And yes, he's almighty and he takes the initiative to protect and save them. Or another incident from Paul's life. There's Paul towards the end of his life, deserted by all at his trial, verse 16, but he is not alone, verse 17. The Lord stood with me. The Lord stood by my side and strengthened me. Or again, think of what the book of Revelation reveals of Jesus' present activity as the exalted one, the one who is alive forever, who holds the keys of death and Hades. Firstly, the book of Revelation shows the Lord Jesus present amongst his people, present with power and authority. That's what's communicated in John's opening vision of Jesus. John hears a voice. He turns round to see who is speaking. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. And then verse 20, we see the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The Lord, exalted Lord, is amongst his people, and he is present as one who knows his people, who cares for them and is concerned for their life as his people, one who provides the life-saving instruction and warnings we see in each of the letters to the seven churches. Each one of those letters starts with, I know. For example, the first to Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labour your endurance. You see, the exalted Lord Jesus is not distant, uninvolved, unengaged with his people. He knows us and he cares about how we're going as his people. And that present care is seen in him disciplining his people and offering them restoration. Famous words spoken to the church at Laodicea. As many as I love, says our Lord, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you should know that the Lord Jesus loves you enough to trouble you, to confront you with your sin, to not let you become content and comfortable in it, loves you enough to make you uneasy when you falter and stray. That unease, that perhaps cold that you might feel in your heart, that's the Lord Jesus calling you to repent, that troubling you through the words of your Christian friends or parts, that's the Lord Jesus calling you to change your direction. The Lord Jesus calling you back to himself. He is active in caring for you. And he graciously says, if you will heed him, 
If you will repent, and in Revelation 3 it was from complacency and trust in themselves, their worth and their achievements, but it may be from sexual sin or lust or unforgiveness or pride. If you will repent, he says, he will restore you to fellowship with himself, to the peace of table fellowship. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you see what a wonderful thing it is to confess that the Lord has ascended bodily and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? It's saying we have an effective saviour who exercises the authority of God, one who can be trusted completely to save us in all our present frailty and weakness and to save us completely now and forever. One who is not absent from us but present with every believer by his spirit. A saviour who is not idle and inactive but one who knows us and is powerfully present to help, who cares as our exalted head for his people, who is speaking to us by his spirit-born word. Oh, a saviour who hasn't left us to fall back on relying on ourselves and our own works to stay right with God, but secures us forever by his intercession as our high priest in the presence of the Father. It's wonderful to confess the Saviour who has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. But while we can be confident of our Lord's present interest, care and presence, we're actually still grieved, aren't we, in various kinds of trials in this life, which is why it's good to be reminded in the creed of our sure and wonderful hope that as the angels said at our Lord's ascension, he will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. But of course our hope is not just that he will come, it's that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That is, at his coming he will bring the end the judgment of all that will establish God's just and righteous rule over the earth and bring in the eternal reign of God in which his people raised to life will live in his presence with joy forever. Now our Lord taught that coming again to judge the living and the dead. Matthew 25, he said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one for another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And at that time we read, he will say to those who are his people, who have welcomed him in welcoming the gospel messengers, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or again, in John 5, Jesus says, the father in fact judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, and that a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil 
to the resurrection of condemnation. Our Lord taught that he would come again to judge the living and the dead. And that is what the apostles proclaimed as part of the gospel. One example, Peter to Cornelius, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now we're going to think more about this uh, when we return to preaching through Matthew and uh, look uh, as Clinton preaches through Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25 in term 4. But the day of his coming and that judgment is certain and it will be sudden and unannounced like a thief in the night, our Lord said. And the judgment of that day is universal and final. There will be no appeal from that judgment. And I'm conscious as I talk to you of this coming judgment that it actually could just become one idea amongst many because there are always lots of ideas, aren't there? One idea amongst many trying to find space in minds already full, whether that's with your plans for the day or your concerns for your kids or your job or the conversations you've had or will have with your friends. I know your minds are full. But let this thought lodge in your mind, even to the point of unsettling you. We will all, every one of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, have you ever tried to imagine that? Have you ever thought about what he would say of your life? See, much of our life is hidden to others. Our thoughts, hidden even from those we live with. But the Lord Jesus will know. And all will be exposed and measured in the light of his pure love and goodness. It's actually an awesome and unsettling thing, isn't it, to think of appearing before the glorified Christ. But we should. For the risen Christ will return. And if you think that you are not ready to meet him, if as that thought lodges in your mind it disturbs you, seek peace with him, come and talk. For as awesome as that day is, it's actually a day which believers in Jesus long for. How can that be? But they do at least the believers in the New Testament. This is Paul finishing 1 Corinthians. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. And then Paul actually says, Maranatha. Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. He he finishes 1 Corinthians with that cry translated, our Lord comes. That Paul can use an Aramaic phrase with a Greek-speaking congregation and expect them to understand it tells you how early and central longing for Christ's return is for believers. Maranatha, like our men, is embedded in the earliest instruction. It's been passed on to believers from the first Aramaic-speaking Christians. That longing for our Lord's return. And the New Testament closes with the desire of his church for his coming. Amen, come, Lord Jesus, finishes the book of Revelation. Now what can we say of this longing? 
Well, firstly, it is right. On that day, Jesus will be glorified. That is, he'll be given the honour, the fame, the praise, which is his due. And as those who love him, we should long for that. You see, when someone you love is overlooked, not recognised for their service or achievement, you're grieved, aren't you? And when they're praised, perhaps that child or that husband or wife for their sport or for their academic performance or work performance, when they're praised, you are glad. Now, Jesus' achievements done in love for the Father and for us are greater than all. He is the light that dispels our darkness. He suffered the death that destroys death and brings life and immortality to light for us. We should long for the Lord to be glorified and grieved when he is not. Oh, and we should long for the establishment of justice and righteousness in his reign and the end of the reign of lies and violence in this world and long for the vindication of his suffering faithful people, the vindication of the slain saints who cry out, Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on earth and avenge our blood? And yes, it's right also to long as we suffer the not rightness of a world in rebellion against its creator, whether it's in sickness or grief or pain or conflict, it's right for us, believers, to long for the day when his promises to his people will be fulfilled, when our Lord shares with his people his resurrection life, for that is our hope, writes Paul to the Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or again to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await for a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humiliation to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. It is right for believers to long for the coming of their Lord. But secondly, recognise this longing is a testament to grace and the effectiveness of Christ's work because of ourselves when we look at our lives, when we measure them against, well, love of God and love of neighbour and see our failure to do that, we should be terrified of that day. But the Lord Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath to come. Paul writes of the confidence we can have in relation to that awesome day in Romans 5. But God, he says, proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? You see, our confidence in that day is not in any good we've done, not in our transformed lives, not even in our faithfulness. It's actually in the grace that gave the Lord Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins while we were still sinners. That's Paul's reasoning here. What lies behind the repeated how much more? Paul is moving from the greater to the lesser. Here's the greater. He's saying, if while we were sinners, rebels, hating God and others, we have been justified by his blood, that is, 
We've been granted forgiveness, reckoned as righteous as those who've kept God's law and we've received that on the basis of faith in the death of Jesus for our sin. If that is ours now, well, how much more? When we're his children, living, trusting the Lord Jesus, will we be saved then? Having been brought, verse 10, to enjoy peace with God now, reconciled to him through Jesus' death, how much more as those living at peace with him will the risen Jesus keep us on that day? You see, we can long for that day that will come on all, the day of wrath of God's just judgment, only because of the Lord Jesus only because of his death for our sin and God graciously reckoning us righteous by faith in him. And to put your hope anywhere else, you know, in your changed life, you're good. that will blunt your longing for that day. For you can never be confident that you are good enough or faithful enough. To look to yourself is to know fear and doubt and uncertainty as you think of that day. But to look to Christ is to have gracious hope. And we should keep a longing for Jesus' return fresh in our hearts every day. For it is a longing that will help us live ready for that day and we are urged to do that. The great danger, Scripture tells us, is in ceasing to be alert and watchful in falling asleep so that that day overtakes us unawares. Now, this urging to readiness is found throughout the scriptures. But let me give you one example. Paul 1 Thessalonians, so then he says, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armour of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the drowsiness of worldliness, of being preoccupied with present pleasures and possessions and plans for wealth or new experiences, is the malaise of much Western Christianity. And you and I must not share in that drowsiness. So let me give you some questions to test your alertness. Simple one. Do you live conscious that the Lord could return today? That today you could see him? Or do you make your plans knowing you will give account to him for your service? Do you plan in the light of eternity? What's the content of your prayers? Is it for this need, that need, that real? But does it include praying for the Lord Jesus to be revealed in glory soon because you want him glorified? Oh, is there a determination to sustain your own faith and godliness so you're not caught out in sin? And yes, is there urgency in sharing the gospel knowing that God's patience will run out one day. Ask yourselves those questions. And we actually have to help each other stay alert, help each other by meeting together. In our meeting, we share in the supper and are reminded month by month 
as we do this, that we do it until he comes. Oh, in our meeting, we can say the creed where we confess he will return in glory. In our meeting, we hear the word that God has spoken and sing his praises. And by that, we're reminded that the living God's active in the world and that he has a plan to exalt his son as judge and saviour of the world. And all that encouragement to stay alert just comes as we meet week by week. And all is lost if you slip into a pattern of life where you're absent. And yes, we have to help each other stay alert by private daily encouragement in our families, reading the Bible together, praying together. And yes, we have to encourage each other to stay alert in all our relationships. As we encourage each other by having real conversations, because we've taken the time to have real relationships with our brothers and sisters, real conversations, because we love them for Jesus' sake and we don't want any to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We do share in the trials of this life and we share in the hostility the world showed to Jesus. But believers are not alone. Jesus is for us. He loves his church, provides, protects and disciplines. So we will come to what he has promised us. And Jesus is with us, sending the Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, to abide with us. And we know this life is not all there is. Jesus has risen. He has triumphed. And one day his victory will be revealed to all. We live in this world with a glorious and sure hope. So if you're a believer, let yourself long for that day. And stay alert so you are found ready, faithful to the Lord Jesus, who, having suffered and died for us under Pontius Pilate, has risen from the dead and descended into heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus, who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in the light of that day when our Lord Jesus comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marvelled at by all who have believed, we pray that you, our God, will make us worthy of your calling and by your power fulfil our every desire to do good and the work produced by our faith in you so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by us and we by him on the day of his coming, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.